Hello, everybody. I hope you can hear me. Uh, my name is Jeff Singer, I'm a senior fellow at the Cato Institute, and welcome to our first ever uh, live webcast of what is normally uh, an event held at the Cato Institute. Um, and uh, we're all, of course, very concerned about the coronavirus epidemic, and that's on all of our minds. Uh, we're worried about how many fatalities we will eventually have and not to in any way minimize our concerns about this. But at the same time, it's very important for us to remember that uh, we're losing roughly 70,000 people a year to drug overdoses. And much of that is a direct result of the war on drugs. Now, many people will, will understandably say, yeah, but the coronavirus pandemic affects us all. And the, uh, the drug war just affects a certain segment of the population. Well, as we're going to hear from our author today that I'm happy to have as our guest, actually, the, the war on drugs affects us all also. And uh, uh, so, uh, so we're going to go and I'm going to introduce you to my guest in a minute. But first, uh, I, my, I wanted to say that uh, most Americans think of the war in Afghanistan as America's longest war. But in fact, America's longest war has been going on for longer than the 19-year war in Afghanistan. The war on drugs had its beginnings with the smoking, with this smoking, smoking Opium Exclusion Act of 1909 and came into full force with the passage of the Harrison Narcotics Act of 1914 which using the taxing power to regulate tax and severely, restri it severely restricted the production, importation, and distributions of opiates and cocaine. Interestingly, cocaine is not a narcotic, but what did they know? In 1937, the Marijuana Tax Act, using the taxing power, again, effectively banned the sale and possession of cannabis, hemp, or marijuana. LSD was banned in 1967. 50 years ago this year, various Federal statutes were consolidated and replaced by the Controlled Substances Act of 1970, which regulated and prohibited various categories of drugs, narcotics, stimulants, and hallucinogens, and established five schedules or classifications for drugs based upon what the Drug Enforcement Administration determines to be their medical application and potential for abuse. The Drug Enforcement Administration, not what doctors determine to be their medical application. Schedule one drugs are considered the most dangerous uh, and are believed to pose a very high risk for addiction with little evidence of medical benefits. Included in this category are marijuana, LSD, MDMA, or also known as ecstasy, and diacetyl morphine, which is an opioid brand name heroin, a semi-synthetic opioid that's still in use in much of the developed world and on hospital formularies. It has about half the potency of the legal opioid hydromorphone, also known as the lauded, and one-fiftieth the potency of the legal synthetic opioid fentanyl. In, 19, in June 1971, President Richard Nixon officially declared a war on drugs and called drug abuse, quote, public enemy number one. Under the provisions of the Controlled Substance Act, he created the Drug Enforcement Administration in 1973. In 1994, in a 1994 interview of former Nixon domestic policy chief John Ehrlichman, 
conducted by journalist Dan Baum and published in Harper's Magazine. Ehrlichman famously said, quote, we knew we couldn't make it illegal to be either against the war or black, but by getting the public to associate the hippies with marijuana and blacks with heroin, and then criminalizing both heavily, we could disrupt those communities. We could arrest their leaders, raid their homes, break up their meetings and vilify them night after night on the evening news. Did we know we were lying about the drugs? Of course we did, close quote. So where do we stand 106 years after the Harrison Narcotics Act, a half a century since a formal declaration of war on drugs? More than a trillion taxpayer dollars later, the US displays the highest drug use overdose and incarceration rates in the developed world. One in three adults in the United States now has a criminal record. Patients with severe illnesses or chronic pain are denied access to proven pain medications while physicians are persecuted for providing pain relief to their patients. The patient-doctor relationship is jeopardized as the Drug Enforcement Administration surveils medical records. SWAT teams break down the doors of innocent people while children get killed in a crossfire between rival drug dealing gangs. And the U.S. government uses asset forfeiture law to seize more assets from its citizens than the amount of all reported burglaries combined. I'm happy to have with us today Colleen Cowles, who believes the war on drugs is actually a war on all of us, all of us. She has written a comprehensive evidence-based examination of the war on drugs and all of its victims, clarifies common misconceptions of drug use and addiction, and offers a blueprint for reform. I read this book and I was taken by the, how it covered the waterfront of everything you could want to think of that deals with the drug issue. Colleen's a practicing attorney, author, speaker, and teacher. She's also a mother who has experienced the impact of the war on her family. She received her undergraduate degree at the University of Wisconsin Stevens Point and her, uh, her JD degree, a law degree from uh, Hamlin University. Um, she is a former CEO of Cal's Legal Systems, a, a legal software company where she trained attorneys nationwide. And uh, with that, let me introduce Colleen Kaus. Colleen, thank you so much for joining us today. It's great to be here, Jeff. Thanks. I wanted to start off with, the, with sort of the easy question, which is what makes an attorney decide to write this book? Well, if you'd asked me 20 years ago, I would not have said that writing this book was on my bucket list. Uh, but uh, as a lot of people that uh, that that focus on a particular topic, um, I, I came from uh, a personal experience. Uh, we have a, a son who has uh, an autoimmune disease. We know that now, but it took nearly 20 years to get a proper diagnosis. Uh, so from the time he was seven years old, he was waking up in the middle of the night with uh, severe pain. And uh, ultimately, he started self-medicating when we couldn't find a solution to his medical issue uh, and ultimately developed a substance use issue. So at that time, uh, I started doing research because I needed to know from a personal standpoint. I, I wanted to understand uh, what was happening uh, in regard to, to addiction as well as, as to some of the things that I was seeing happening uh, because of the, the war on drugs and drug policy. Uh, and coming from it as an attorney, um, I thought I understood or at least had a basic understanding of drug policy in this country. And then realize that 
like so many people that are, are involved with the drug war, uh, we see one piece. We may see it as a prosecutor. We may see it as a parent. We may see it as a law enforcement uh, professional. Um, but until your family is engulfed in it, uh, I found that it was very difficult to look at the whole picture and really understand the tragedy of what's going on. And then as I started researching, I was astounded at how little we pay attention to the science and the medicine that has developed over the years and how few changes we've really had despite just an immense failure of drug policy over the, the last well, 50 years and particularly um, um, you know, since this was called the war on drugs. Oh, before I go on, I want to let our viewers know that we're going to be taking questions later. And uh, you could formulate your questions and tweet them to us. Uh, the Twitter hashtag to use is Cato Drug War. Hashtag Cato Drug War. Capital C for Cato, capital D for drug, and a capital W for war. Cato Drug War. You, you mentioned in your book that a lot of the war on drugs issues take take place behind closed doors, that uh, people don't really see what's going on, how parents and support systems are, are, are dissuaded from being advocates and they can't receive information. Could you uh, explain that further? Yeah, I think one of the, the uh, biggest surprises for me and one of the most difficult aspects of this whole journey uh, was that the conventional wisdom for parents is if you have a child who uh, has an addiction issue, uh, it, you're somehow harming them if you advocate for them. So we've taken the traditional support systems that we that are, are usually considered very important for anyone with a, a health issue, and we've pretty much decimated that. Even parents who question the wisdom of allowing their child to hit bottom, particularly when bottom could be death in, in this world of overdose, um, even those parents uh, feel a lot of stigma. Uh, it's very difficult to get information. Uh, the, the parents a lot of times are, are uh, really treated kind of as, as pariahs um, and the don't enable uh, mentality goes so far as I, I've had parents ask me, um, I, my, my son has come to me and, and wants to, uh, to go into treatment, but am I enabling, am I harming him somehow if I help to structure treatment? Now, in, in what other universe would we look at someone needing help and particularly if that person is in active drug use um, and our, the complexity of our system, there is almost no chance that they're going to be capable of being able to sift through all of the options and find decent, appropriate treatment for their individual needs without some family support. And yet we're telling parents that they should go it alone and that somehow the parent is going to harm them uh, if, they, if they advocate or, or help to... Uh, uh, to, to find uh, treatment options. Um, I also found it really difficult to find the really what is going on 
on in the 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 application of the war on drugs. So much of it does happen behind closed doors. Uh, in jails, it's not that the jail personnel are, are bad people, but no one sees what's going on. And those people have seen daily the 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 ravages of what happens with with addiction. Um, so they a lot of times are coming from their hearts and wanting to do whatever they can to stop that those problems. Um, but a, a lot of them have no training as to uh, treatment options of addiction, what causes addiction, uh, what can exacerbate addiction. So they can and they've they've been been uh, trained with a very punitive system. So we we see those kinds of things going on in in uh, in jails and prisons. Uh, it also happens behind closed doors in prosecutors' offices, where very harsh plea agreements are negotiated, and ninety seven percent of all cases now are settled by plea agreement rather than by having a, a jury trial. Uh, so basically, we have no due process anymore within our criminal system because our sanctions are so enormously harsh that people can't uh, take the risk of going to trial and potentially spending even more years in prison. We also hear a lot I, about I mass to... incarceration. Uh, no, uh, as a doctor, what's, what's always uh, stricken me about this is it's obvious to me that despite what people say, most people are still treating this as a moral issue, as a moral failing, as opposed to as a, as a behavioral health issue. Um, and, um, mm -hmm. you know, there, and I'd like you to discuss this a little bit, but there are, there are differences of opinions among people who, who treat addiction. Uh, most people, most people on the MD side look at it as a, like a disease, like uh, the drug sort of uh, takes over your brain. But then a whole lot of other uh, very, uh, experienced specialists that are not MDs, more psychologists, clinical psychologists, and other clinicians and researchers who look at it more as a, as a learning disorder, uh, where the, you just have this unhealthy uh, uh, relationship with the drug. But regardless of where anybody comes down on that, the bottom line is it's a kind of illness. And we don't treat somebody who has uh, diabetes or COPD, let's say we don't we don't treat them as if they're moral failures, and that they need to hit rock bottom. And another thing about uh, addiction, upon which everyone agrees, regardless of where you come down on, on what makes it tick, uh, everyone agrees on a definition, which is compulsive use despite negative consequences. Uh, you know, the perfect example uh, of that is the person who's addicted to alcohol and. Because of that, has lost his job, lost his family, maybe even lost a place to live, and uh, knows he or she needs to get help and promises to, and then can't stop. This is just one more drink, and then I'll do that tomorrow. It's a compulsive disorder. So the, the notion of correcting that by punishment. It shows a lack of understanding of what this is all about. Because if losing my job and losing my wife and losing my kids and losing my house didn't get me to stop, what makes you think putting me in a jail is going to get me to stop? In fact, it's just more trauma 
uh, a lot of the, these evidence suggests that whatever it is, the substance that we're addicted to has become sort of our safe space that we've learned to go to when we're traumatized. Anyway, talk about that. <laughs> One of the, uh, the the most important pieces of research that I did for, for my own well-being um, and, and mindset and making decisions uh, for our family, but also within the whole context of working with other families and, and research for the book, uh, was use of medications in treating uh, substance use disorder. So the, the our own government and, and a lot of different agencies um, state that the gold standard of substance use treatment is use of medications. And that's, that's very counterintuitive. We treat drug addiction with drugs. It's not surprising that that, that hasn't been uh, um, largely accepted. It's, it's not intuitive. But the um, uh, SAMHSA, the, the um, uh, agency that, that, uh, it, that, is, um, that handles um, drug abuse and, and uh, research and, and those types of things in, in the U.S. government um, has stated that medications, uh, Suboxone, Methadone, uh, Buprenorphine, um, uh, it, it will cut the uh, overdose um, rates in half. Now, when you look at how many people are overdosing in this country right now, it's the equivalent of a 9-11 attack every two weeks. I mean, that kind of puts it in context as to how, how horrendous this is and how many people we're losing. If we can use medications to cut those overdose rates in half, I mean, think about that. Think of how many lives are saved. But then I also look at the, our, our own government saying that this is the gold standard of treatment. And I'm not a believer in any one-size-fits-all treatment. Um, it, that's not the perfect solution for everyone, but the statistics tell us that it is the best, um, the best, uh, statistically, it's the, it's the best solution, uh, for a lot of people. Um, but we are, that same government, um, in most jails and prisons in this country, those, uh, medications are not only prohibited, but if someone is in successful recovery with those medications and they're arrested, maybe because they missed a probation appointment or any number of reasons that they can be arrested and put behind bars, even if it's for a short period of time, it can be a death sentence, literally, because they go, they're denied their medications, they're put through withdrawal behind bars, and when they're released, their tolerance levels now are reduced and they're probably depressed and, and uh, um, a much, much higher uh, incidence of overdose. Because if they go back to drug use uh, at the same levels that they were using prior to, uh, to going through withdrawal, uh, there is a much greater chance of, of overdose. Um, but So we have this whole idea that, that abstinence is the only solution and for a long period of time, we've looked at peer support groups as, as the, only, the only way that, that uh, people can find recovery. Uh, and there's a lot of advantages to the peer support groups, the 12-step meetings, but it's not unlike a cancer support group. They can be very helpful, but they don't replace medical care. Um, so when I looked at the whole foundation of the war on drugs, the fact that medications can successfully treat substance use disorder 
to me, that wiped out the whole foundation for the war on drugs because medications don't remove a moral failing, but they are successfully treating addiction. There are people who have have been uh, lost for years who are finding their ways back to normal life using medications. So whether medication is the uh, the the best um, solution for any one person uh, should be between a doctor who can look at all of the medical situations and that individual. Um, instead, we've got uh, basically legal professionals who are dictating treatment and prohibiting medications at the same time that we're we're keeping doctors from um, from practicing uh, medicine through threats by the DEA. Yeah, as. Uh I, I like to explain to people uh, when they don't understand medication assisted treatment. I, you know, for example, uh, a doctor, Tom Price, who was the fir first uh, Secretary of Health and Human Services in this administration, who's an orthopedic surgeon, he said, Why would you want to treat addiction by, putting, by addicting a person to a different drug? And uh, I try to explain to people that what's called medication assisted treatment, which is basically uh, getting somebody on something like methadone, most that's what we have the longest experience with, or buprenorphine. It helps stabilize the person. A person who uh, is suffering from addiction um, is spending a good deal of their time either uh, trying to raise money to purchase the substance or avoiding the police or uh, using the substance. And um, that's most of their day. And it, uh, it, when, when you get them stabilized, where they don't have to worry about going into withdrawal, which is a, a, one of the things that they fear so much because it's such a terrible experience. And they don't have to worry about getting the substance. And uh, they don't have to worry, and you, you've reduced their craving. Now their life gets stable. Now they could begin to uh, get a place to live, get a job, and also spend time looking into, hopefully with therapeutic help, what is it exactly that has has driven them to um, kind of, they have to learn how to recognize what's going on in them where they suddenly want to go to this safe space that involves using that substance, learn how to recognize it when it's starting to happen and learn how to replace it with some other coping tools. Um, we also know that actually the majority of people who are addicted to illegal drugs on their own, recover without any treatment by the time they hit their 30s. So it's not like it's something that's completely in control of your brain because people do outgrow it. But I like to I like to make it, when I talk to people about this, I say, think of it as analogous to uh, a person who's got severe clinical depression. You know, they don't want to get out of bed, they're not eating, they're not doing anything. They want, they're having suicidal thoughts and you're getting them into a therapist. And before we can even begin to start talking and working and working on your problem, we got to do something to stabilize you because right now you're in such a bad state that we can't even talk and try to examine what's going on. So it gets you in controlled with an antidepressant. That's a, a form of medication-assisted treatment. So I like to, to try to explain to, to people like the former Secretary Price, that's what we're dealing with when we're dealing with But, you know, another interesting thing, and I want to kind of segue into this because this is an important one of the, we talk about how all of us are affected by the war on drugs. A large segment of the population affected by the war on drugs now are chronic pain patients and even 
I'm, I can speak to this as a practicing surgeon, acute pain patients, patients who are being treated postoperatively for pain or, or coming in with an acute surgical emergency for which they have pain. Not only is the judicial system and law enforcement practicing medicine by telling us, you know, what's the best way to treat someone with substance use disorder, but they're also practicing medicine by saying how much pain medicine a person needs for a particular problem and how to treat chronic pain patients. And these are people who have no medical background, no medical degree, but they're basically dictating oftentimes with threat of imprisonment, how doctors who practice medicine, and not only are they harming the doctor-patient relationship, but the patients are going untreated or under-medicated for pain, and it's having a, uh, a tremendous negative effect on people who don't have substance use disorder, they just need their pain treatment. Talk about that. Yeah, it was interesting for me because our uh, in our family, you know, we've had the the pain issues as well as the the substance use issues, and uh, seeing what's happened to uh, to chronic pain patients, um, and like you said, Jeff, I mean, every one of us could be a car accident or a surgery away from disaster. Uh, I actually. Um, uh, held up the publication of the book because as I was researching it, I ended up speaking with more and more uh, pain patients as well as physicians who were um, affected by this in ways that um, that were unbelievable to me. So I, I held publication of the book to do further research on uh, on those those areas. Um, it, there's a the the biggest. Um, uh, research um, that has been done was on, uh, uh, came up with the statistic that uh, 56% of all pain patients are reporting disruption in care. And some of that is cold turkey being cut off of pain medications that have worked for them for years. Some of it is, is doctors just saying, you know, I, I don't want to risk having the DEA raid my home or my, my practice. I don't want to risk being accused of being a, a pill pusher. And I don't want to risk my license or a civil or criminal lawsuit just because I'm trying to help my patients in ways that have been successful over the years. So we're creating so often when when government tries to solve a problem, we end up with greater problems. And this is a, a perfect example of that. Um, when we look at the statistics, um, the, the, the largest study done um, showed, well, all of the studies done have shown less than a 1% overdose rate for pain patients that are working with their physicians. That is not the problem with the overdose issue in this country. And yet we have hysteria that is now putting pain patients in a situation where they are, the suicide rates are escalating. Um, many can no longer work because they can't get out of bed because of the excruciating pain. Uh, they're, they're needing to go to the pharmacy every three to seven days, depending on the state, uh, including states where, where the states are saying, you know, you should have 14 days worth of, of, uh, of your prescriptions, uh, whether it's coronavirus or whether it's hurricane season or whatever. And yet you can't get prescriptions for controlled substances for more than three to seven days, again, depending on the state. Um, and these are people that 
often have times getting have trouble getting out of bed, let alone having to go to the the uh, uh, the the pharmacy um, that frequently. There's this constant fear that the next time they go to their doctor. For one reason or another, it might just be a doctor retiring, but they won't be able to get their medications. Some have been desperate enough to go to the street and find street medications, which escalates their chances of overdose because of tainted drugs or because of, of differences in, in the, uh, um, the, uh, um, the, 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 um, quantities of, of uh, medication uh, in those street drugs. So we've gone full circle here with, with having a, a reaction from the government that was supposed to solve the overdose epidemic and is now contributing to it at the same time that, that they're, they've, they've removed the right to health care uh, from, uh, from many pain patients. And we've got mass exodus of, of uh, physicians, particularly in those pain medication and, and addiction treatment uh, areas. Yes, in fact, um, and I've written about this a lot, as many of our viewers probably know. Um, this is a lot of this is based upon this uh, falsely held uh, notion that most of the people out there with substance use, use disorder started off as pain patients who then got addicted, and now are out there involved in all uh, this illicit drug use, uh, and they believe that um, putting people on opioids for pain uh, essentially condemns them to this life. And the fact is, uh, research has shown using government data that there is absolutely no correlation between the number of prescription pills written and uh, the uh, misuse rate or use disorder rate with respect to opioids. There's no connection at all. Also, research has shown that th there's been a growing overdose rate following an exponential trend line since at least the 1970s that predated the advent of the opioids uh, that were being used and are still going on now. So for example, the prescription opioid overdose crisis, that ended about almost 10 years ago. Now, uh, from there, it went to the heroin overdose crisis, then a heroin and fentanyl overdose crisis. Now it's fentanyl and stimulant overdose crisis. So now we're seeing a big comeback of methamphetamine and cocaine. So there's this, there's this idea, again, the, the, the law, law enforcement and also legislators are practicing medicine. And just like they're trying to dictate mm -hmm. what's the best way to treat substance use disorder, they're also trying to dictate what's the best way to treat pain based upon notions that are held that are not based in the evidence. So that, that's another way in which um, you know, the war on drugs is, is, is hurting uh, many of us. Um, I'd like you to also talk about, therefore, this kind of leads into the whole uh, notion of drug courts. We have a lot of um, a lot of people in the criminal justice system who have come to the conclusion that just locking up people for uh, consuming a substance that is unapproved by the government is uh, not a good approach. So they've come up with this method where you go before the court, and then the court gives you the choice of prison or treatment. And then, of course, they usually dictate the treatment. Uh, that, that's generally been disappointing in, in outcomes. Do you, you, you know much about that? You go into that in your book. You know, I think my the biggest um, concern I have with drug courts is that it's propagating the idea that we're doing something about the war on drugs 
and it, drug courts are perhaps, I mean, some have uh, have done better. A lot have done worse. When you agree to drug court, um, if you don't succeed in drug court, and that could be anything from not being able to pay the fees that are ongoing for, for drug court to missing an appointment to, uh, to a poten potential relapse. And that is a lot of times part of moving toward recovery. And yet if any of those things happen, you will end up or likely end up behind bars. And in many cases, you end up with longer prison sentences or jail sentences than you would have had you not entered the drug court system. Um, and I, I appreciate what you said about the attorneys versus uh, physicians. I mean, I, I can tell you, I have absolutely no capability um, to dictate treatment. Um, and and I've, I've studied this, but I am not a physician. We need medical care um, for for uh, um, people going into into drug court and it's still the judges the prosecutors uh, the probation agents uh, the, the drug court itself dictating treatment it's usually a one-size-fits-all based on a treatment center that has negotiated contracts with the uh, the county court um, part of the probation requirements are is often for the um, the probationer to sign off on medical confidentiality. So when they're dictating that treatment, those counselors that they're going to are reporting back to the 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 uh, drug court, uh, and the reporting back to the people that can put this person behind bars. Uh, my other objection to uh, to drug courts is that uh, statistically. Um, the the research that that I've done when they're reporting success rates, they only report success rates of those who finish the program, which is about half. The other half don't finish the program, but because they don't finish it, they're not uh, included in those success rates. So the success rates really are somewhat tainted. Um, so there's there there are a lot of of issues. I think that there were probably people that um, looked at. Uh, the, the incarceration rates and said, we have to do something different. Uh, I'm all for that. But I also think that having drug courts kind of gives us a sense that, that, uh, that we've made progress and that, that we've got this solved. And, and, uh, um, and I think likely it has minimized the, uh, uh, the, the, the movement toward finding real solutions. Um, I mean, anytime we have, I think any, any kind of a, a, a policy, we should all ask ourselves, is this looking at medical care um, and is it, is it giving individualized care um, to, to the, uh, the individual or do we have a, an attorney dictating uh, treatment? To be fair, uh, probably a lot of the people who advocate drug courts uh, think they're being more humane. They think they're doing the right thing. But again, a lot of uh, absolutely most decisions are are asked by, um, are rather are made by by the judge. So a judge is practicing medicine. Um, they most of the, the drug courts tend to favor the abstinence only form of treatment, which the evidence shows is comparatively unsuccessful. The most, like you said earlier, the most successful form of, of treatment is uh, uh, medication-assisted treatment with either methadone or buprenorphine, uh, and abstinence only has a very high failure rate, but 
um, sometimes the biases of the court uh, against using a, an opioid to treat an opioid addiction and, and the, the underlying feeling that it's a moral failing and that abstinence is getting away from that evil thing tends to make them put people in abstinence-only programs. But you're basically, it, again, I like to go back to that diabetes analogy. Would you want the judge to determine whether a person should be treated with uh, insulin or oral uh, antihyperglycemics and a diet regimen? Is that should that be the judge's decision, or should that be a decision made uh, by the the patient in consultation with their doctor? Well, that's what happens when it comes to this particular well, category of people who are not like everybody else. So, well, and using that uh, analogy with, anyway, with diabetes, you would be putting them in jail if they uh, if they if they relapsed on a candy bar. You know, if, um, we we don't do that with any other type of uh, medical issue. Let me remind everybody that the hashtag is Cato Drug War, capital C, capital D, capital W, if you want to uh, tweet in your questions. In your book, Colleen, there was a passage when you're dealing with decriminalization, and I want to actually, we received a question about that, so that reminded me of it. But this, uh, I want you to talk about uh, what Portugal did in a minute. But first, the idea behind uh, Harm reduction, which I also want to talk about and you go into in your book, and the idea behind decriminalization. You have a, uh, something that really struck me. I actually mm -hmm. highlighted it. Uh, say uh, any drug policy, one, should, should recognize there's no such thing as a soft or hard drug, only healthy and unhealthy relationships with drugs. An individual's unhealthy relationship with drugs often conceals relationship difficulties with loved ones, with the world around them, and with themselves, and the eradication of all drugs is an impossible goal. And that's what you uh, uh, say, say in your book, and I thought that's something that everybody should just kind of remember and maybe post it on their desk. So um, Roy Miller asks, uh, uh, could you please talk about what's happening in Portugal? And uh, to let, it's not really happening in Amsterdam. He asks also, and Amsterdam. And Amsterdam is really not happening. Portugal is the example. Talk about Portugal. Yeah, it's, it's nice that we have roadmaps for what has worked. Uh, in 2001, Portugal had a very similar situation to what we have right now. Uh, very high incidence of, uh, of heroin addiction, um, high incidence of HIV. Uh, and at that point, they decided that they needed to do something differently. And the, so they decriminalized all drugs. Now, they may have legalized all drugs at that time, but because of UN treaties that, that have been largely because of the United States exporting our, our war on drugs to, uh, to other places, um, UN members are prohibited from legalizing drugs. And so Portugal took it as far as they felt comfortable with taking it at that point. Um, the, the benefit of, of legalization versus decriminalization, decriminalization, ends the, the challenge of putting drug users in jail and starting this whole cascade effect of killing their opportunities and adding trauma and isolation, all the things that trigger addiction. Um, the challenge with that is it doesn't do anything with the supply. So if we legalize drugs, similar to what states have done with cannabis, we can control the supply. So we're replacing the cartels and their tainted drugs and their 
uh, incredible profits used to fund terrorism and a, a whole sort a whole lot of things. Um, if we legalize, then we can also control supply and we can have clean supply of drugs and, and regulate those drugs. Um, but when we look at what happened with Portugal, even with only decriminalization, it has been, they've, they took their, the majority of their budget and changed it from punitive policy to uh, public health policy. So if someone is, uh, is arrested, um, they may be interviewed and offered treatment, not mandated, but offered treatment. Uh, they, uh, they will be uh, offered some help with um, everything from uh, uh, housing to job opportunities. There's, there are tax credits for employers who, who employ people. Uh, and the, the, the success rate there is just astounding. I've got all the statistics in the book, but Drug use stayed about the same, but interestingly, the 18 to 20, I think 24 or 25 year old um, age group um, dropped significantly in, uh, in drug use. Um, they have uh, one, I, I think it's one fiftieth of the the um, overdose rates that that we have. Um, the the drug relate the drug war related crime has dropped. Um, and the the, um, the relationships between law enforcement and the population have improved significantly, helping with uh, with solving other uh, crimes that actually have victims because the population is no longer afraid of the police, um, and that's that's kind of a. a that's become a, an issue here. Um, right now, suicide has grown to be a, a great, there's a greater number of police deaths in this country by suicide than line of duty deaths. So the, the war on drugs is not only taking down the, the everything from pain patients to families with substance uh, use to families worried about having their, their doors knocked in with, with SWAT teams, um, but it's also really negatively impacting our law enforcement. So Portugal has given us a proven path to solving a lot of those issues. Well, what Portugal did was uh, they put a lot of emphasis on uh, what's known as harm reduction. And harm reduction is actually yes. a very well-received approach or strategy everywhere but in the United States, unfortunately. I mean, harm reduction is practiced very extensively in Europe, which is why, for example, Germany has uh, the second highest opioid prescription rate in the world, second only to ours, and it's prescription uh, volume has mirrored hours where it spiked around 2012 and then started coming down. Um, but their overdose rate was never nearly as high as ours because they practice a lot of harm reduction. Um, and basically harm reduction is, is basically the idea that you're not necessarily going to be able to get everybody. You're not going to have a drug-free society. It's just not realistic to expect that. And it's non-judgmental rather than trying to uh, force someone to stop engaging in an activity that you think is against their best interests, you're saying, okay, well, let me see what I can do to make it where it does less harm to you. Um, and uh, so examples, uh, by the way, this, this comes naturally to most, most doctors because most of what we doctors do every day, and at least in a developed world, is practice harm reduction. So when I have an overweight patient who's got diabetes and high blood pressure, and I know I can get that patient uh, 
to be not require any medicines and just uh, if I get them to go on a good diet and exercise program, but they just can't get themselves to do it. So I prescribe uh, medication for their diabetes and their high blood pressure. I'm practicing harm reduction. I'm, I'm not being able to, I'm, I'm basically mm -hmm. saying That's if you're going point. to engage in a lifestyle that I think is in your best interest, let me at least do what I can to make it do less harm for you. We should have no different attitude towards that disorder or disease than we do towards the uh, the disorder of substance use disorder. Anyway, so uh, in Portugal, they they put a tremendous amount of effort into harm reduction. Uh, so let's talk about different kinds of harm reduction. It's starting to gain traction here in this country, but there's still a lot of resistance mm -hmm. to it. So uh, I'm going to let you, since it's all in your book, I don't want to <laughs> take it from you. Talk about uh, Narcan, <laughs> talk about uh, now, uh Central test strips, uh, overdose pre prevention sites, and needle exchange programs. Uh, discuss that to, for our viewers. Well, as much as I would like to immediately have drug legalization and a, a complete public health system uh, addressing uh, addiction, that wouldn't take uh, additional money. It would be out reallocating funds. Uh, obviously, that's not going to happen today. So today, we need to keep them alive. And in order to do that, there are a lot of different steps. Um, I, the uh, Narcan, um, this is what it what it looks like. There's a um, it's a nasal spray, um, very easy to administer, and it doesn't hurt anyone if they if they are. Uh, oh, let me see if I can get it in the camera here. Um, but uh, it, this can be um, uh, picked up at a, a, a drugstore. We have come a ways. Um, a few years ago, I went to a Walgreens um, because I, I speak on this topic and, and uh, because my, my son had had some issues, I thought I should carry it, which I do at all times. And I would recommend that everyone does that because you literally can save a life. Um, but I went to the, uh, the local Walgreens and went to the counter. I got a taste of what some of our pain patients feel and what our substance use patients feel. Uh, I happened to get um, a clerk that obviously had some strong ideas about um, about use of Narcan. Um, I was looked up and down with suspicion, and uh, and the answer was just we don't carry that. So I left the Walgreens um, building uh, into the parking lot. A young man followed me out, and he said, "Ma'am, do you need Narcan? If 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 you do, I have some I can share with you." And which he did. So I kind of did a drug deal in a parking lot to try and get a life-saving medication um, that I could carry. Um, but I had a 45-minute conversation with that, that young man um, who shared with me that he was working, he was, he was doing well, except that he was homeless because he had a criminal record and couldn't rent. Um, and uh, I, I saw a lot of correlations between him and, and uh, between him and my son, actually, but he didn't have a support system. Um, I followed his path over the last few years. Um, literally, he didn't have a chance. Um, he's in prison. Um, and when he gets out of from behind bars, um, he's going to have difficulty with with housing, with with jobs. Um, he'll have that criminal record for for life. And when I think of that experience at Walgreens, he was the most compassionate person in that in that whole experience. And yet, when he gets out, when he has problems, he will be blamed. So I, that just hit me. I, that's, I, a that's a little bit of a tangent, but. 
but that's what happens. And, and, you know, just the real life examples of, of what happened. Um, the, the other, um, one of the other. No, it's an important tangent because I will uh, another thing we hope to get to is how many, how the criminal justice system, uh, uh, destroys the lives of particularly uh, poor and minority people living in the inner city. Because if you're, if you're a you know, prosecutor for possession of an Ill illicit drug and you don't have uh, the, the right kind of legal support, odds are you're gonna accept a plea bargain, sp spend some time in, in prison and have a felony on your record, which may mean you can never get a, a decent job, you can't get into uh, you can't, in many states, you can't get a license to, to, to practice mm -hmm. your trade or craft, um, and you may not be able to rent. So you could take some young person who is engaging in the use of a substance that is not approved by others. That's basically all this person is guilty of, is using a substance that's not approved by others. And you just destroyed this person's life forever and, and added to the yes. likely increasing death toll from from overdoses, but I want to get back to talking about harm reduction. So, uh, talk about uh, you know you, you have on your list of things in your book overdose prevention sites and legal exchange programs. That's very important and in the news a lot lately. So talk about that. Yeah, and I do want to I do want to mention um, fentanyl test strips, which are available. I think a lot of parents when their their teenagers are going out for their uh, you know first. Uh, date um, say you know I don't want you to drink or use drugs but if you uh, if you do drink um, call me we will pick you up this is kind of the equivalent to that do we want our kids doing drugs do we want anybody doing illicit drugs uh, no particularly because they are so dangerous um, because they're they're tainted um, but if they might do them anyway why not test for them so that they can see what's in those drugs and and save a life? I mean, these are two dollars. Uh, Tom Petty or Prince could have their lives could have been saved over two dollars had they used those or had they known about them. And yet, we still have states that can that you can end up in jail for carrying these because they're considered paraphernalia. Um, I what I wanted to uh, what I wanted to talk about, uh, Colleen. Uh, we were originally going to talk about needle exchange programs and, and overdose prevention sites, AKA safe injection facilities. Would you uh, talk about that a bit as a harm reduction tool? Um, yes, I think that's that's part of what uh, what we lost just um, just now. But um, with the overdose prevention sites um, or safe reduction sites, uh, it gives us the opportunity to have someone. Um, uh, have a, a safe place, and, it, and it's not um, intuitive that we want to give people a, a place to um, uh, to take drugs. But it it it, it uh, reduces the um, uh, overdose um, rates. There have been no overdoses in safe consumption sites uh, worldwide. Uh, unfortunately, we don't have any safe consumption sites, legal ones, in the United States yet. But we're moving in that direction. Um, but it also opens doors for people to uh, be more open to uh, accepting treatment uh, in the future. Um, they get education when they when they come in, and uh, and with the uh, the needle exchanges, um, we're reducing HIV rate rates on um, and well a whole host of of uh, 
of other issues, um, hepatitis, um, things that, that don't only impact drug users, but impact the overall population. So across the I board, uh, having those sites. Yeah, um, in fact, yeah, having those sites is going to uh, help this is more people. Famous, this is a shameless plug for me. But uh, yesterday I had an article in the New York Daily News and it relates to the coronavirus epidemic that we're dealing with right now. So ever since uh, needle exchange programs or safe injection facilities have been around, among the things that they do is they test. So when you, you get your needle exchanged, you also are offered an HIV test or a hepatitis test, uh, test testing for sexually transmitted diseases. Well, now we're all concerned, of course, about the coronavirus epidemic. And this is a, a lot of the, the, the population of particularly people who use IV drug users, many of them are hard to reach from a, you know, a public health uh, standpoint. They're oftentimes uh, mm -hmm. hiding out. They're maybe uninformed about what's going on. Uh, they're, in, they're living on the streets. Many of them, are, by the way, are very vulnerable to coronavirus infection because they're, under, they're malnourished. They may be immunocompromised. So um, when they present to get a clean needle and syringe, or if they're in a supervised injection facility where they are, are given one in the presence of someone standing by with the overdose antidote naloxone, they are also they can now be tested for coronavirus. And if they get corona, if they are found to have coronavirus and they're sick, they can be put in the hospital. And if they are not sick enough to be hospitalized, they could be at least quarantined like we're all starting to practice now and protect the general public from uh, getting infected with coronavirus. And of course, the uh, humane as well as medically uh, ethical way to, to handle their hospitalization or quarantine would be to have them receive medication assisted treatment while that's going on so they don't go into withdrawal, which is of course a disincentive for them cooperating with the quarantine or the hospitalization. Um, an added mm -hmm. bonus from that would likely be that when they're released from quarantine, if they've been already on, let's say, methadone for a couple of weeks, there's a good chance you can get them to stay with that program afterwards. But the main thing is that we always think of harm reduction when it comes to as a strategy for drug use as, uh, as a way of reducing the harm that people who use, people who inject drugs and other drug users uh, can uh, do to themselves. But in fact, now with the ability to test for coronavirus, it's also a harm reduction tool for the rest of us because we're also reducing mm -hmm. the harm that that population can do to the rest of the population. Again, this is just another way in which uh, the war on drugs affects everyone. Uh, uh, on While we're on the subject, if a person who's uh, arrested uh, for drug use and is put into prison, what happens if they're infected with coronavirus? What's going to happen? Are we going to put them in prison? Are we going to put them in the hospital? Are we, going to, are we going to infect all the other prison inmates because the, simply because the person was possessing an illicit substance? I mean, these are interesting questions that open up, but it affects everyone. Um, you uh, mentioned among the things you'd like to do as a harm reduction tool is end late night release from jail. What is that all about? Mm -hmm. Well, that's one of those behind the scenes things that I don't think most people realize, but it is a standard practice in county jails throughout this country. 
that there is usually a release date that's mandatory. So if jail staff doesn't get around to uh, to filling out the paperwork, um, they they're very likely to um, to be released just before midnight. Or if um, the the jail staff has um, uh, downtime, um, it's not unusual, and this includes in Wisconsin in the middle of the winter, uh, to have an inmate released at four in the morning. And there's there's nothing done to make sure that they have a place to go, uh, that uh, that there there are any services. Um, so it's it's devastating. Um, and it also puts them at very, very high risk of, of overdose, particularly if they have been on medications and, and their medications were, were denied while they were, were in jail. So some of these practices that, um, that may seem, I don't know, in some way logical from a processing standpoint um, are, are literally life-threatening. Um, when you were talking about the coronavirus, the, the, the challenges right now are huge as far as uh, uh, those on probation, if they miss an appointment. Um, and, and there are some things that are being done and that are being looked at as far as minimizing the, the risks here. Um, but if someone misses an appointment or, or does something that is considered a probation violation, being put in jail right now could literally be life-threatening. Uh, there are some jurisdictions that have released nonviolent uh, offenders uh, so that they are not at risk uh, in in the jails, um, but it's uh, it's it's a huge problem. Even without the coronavirus, most people who have substance use issue, uh, issues uh, have coexisting disorders whether they're their physical pain uh, that they were self-medicating or whether they're uh, mental health issues, putting them in jail is about the worst thing that we could possibly do. Hard beds, um, uh, I mean, suicide rates in, in county jails are, are quite frightening and the highest rates of suicide are before someone is actually uh, convicted. It's those holding periods before, um, before they're convicted. Um, so when, when, uh, when we're, I think that sometimes those in the system can become hardened, you know, oh, yeah, it's going to be two years probation. It'll be three years probation. It'll be, it's only 30 days in jail. Those sanctions can literally change lives and sometimes they can kill people. You know, there are some programs uh, that have been going on for a while. Uh, you mentioned the in Seattle, Washington, for example, uh, it's sort of a harm. It's, 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 it's probably one of the closest things in this country, at least on a community level, that approximates what's going on in Portugal. It's called LEAD, L-E-A-D. Uh, mm -hmm. Could you uh, discuss that? And suddenly I'm forgetting what L-E-A-D stands for. So remind me of what it stands for. Uh, law enforcement, something diversion. <laughs> so I'm not, I'm not even, I'm not even sure myself, but I'm very familiar with the program, and it's a great program. It's actually, uh, yes, it's in the book. Um, it's, uh, it's actually what I like to consider de facto decriminalization. When things, when when law enforcement, uh, and in this case, the King County prosecutor as well, is not is no longer um, prosecuting. Um, for any possession of any drug uh, of, um, of under a gram. Um, but 
when we see professionals uh, seeing that the devastation is outweighing the benefits of the war on drugs, we've had um, various jurisdictions saying, we're not doing it anymore. We're not arresting. And instead, these programs are helping to find treatment alternatives, um, finding uh, uh, housing, helping with with uh, um, with um, job placement. Um, so they're giving services. So yeah, basically, um, they're they're trying to mimic Portugal. On, I, I mean, it would be better to do this officially because a change in staff or a change in, in management uh, could make changes. Um, it's not codified in any way, but it, it certainly helps. Um, the de facto uh, decriminalization has actually been going on for many years. Um, in the, the uh, intro to my book, I tell a story about uh, uh, my mother grew up in the Depression, and she was, the, she was from a very large family who lived on a farm. Uh, they literally couldn't afford to get her to high school to finish her high school um, diploma, and she very much wanted to do that. Her uncle was the county sheriff, so she lived in the county jail for a few months in order to finish high school because she could get transportation to high school from there. Um, during Prohibition, some of my favorite stories from my mother were the stories of Uncle John during Prohibition warning the farmers to hide their stills during Prohibition before the feds came in because he knew that the violence and the risk of, of uh, catastrophic harm was much greater if those feds came in and the farmers were either trying to hide something or or fought back or whatever could have happened. So he was one of the first harm reduction people in the 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 uh, the um, probe the alcohol prohibition years. Um, so it's been going on for a long time where we have it, we have professionals who use common sense and say, you know, our policies are not working. I am not going to enforce them anymore. Um, I'm going to take some, I have some questions here. Jaleesa Clark asks on Twitter, uh, uh, this is an interesting question. How do we incentivize doctors to treat people with opioid addiction? I, I have my thoughts, but I, uh, and, but I'd like to, I'd be interested to hear yours because you've dug more into this. My thoughts would, are that I think a lot of doctors now, because of, uh, of all of the, uh, uh, the, the overreaching uh, law enforcement on this are afraid actually to get involved with it. There's uh, so few doctors have taken advantage of the opportunity to get the waiver from the, the drug enforcement administration to prescribe suboxone, for example, um, that uh, uh, because they're afraid that if the suboxone shows up on the street and is traced to them, they'll get arrested, for example, uh, uh, or uh, also because they, they don't want a lot of people from that population in you know, in their office, because it may, uh, may make disincentivize other patients from wanting to come there. So that's the way I see it. I think I think it's a combination of, for the same reason doctors are nowadays afraid to prescribe pain pills, they're reluctant to treat people with substance use disorder. But I'd like to hear what you have to say about that. 
Well, I would totally agree with what you just said, Jeff. And I think we do have two levels here. Before we can start thinking about how to incentivize the medical profession, uh, and we need training for for the medical profession. Uh, and, uh, until recently, uh, there there wasn't a lot of training on on uh, uh, substance use disorder in in medical schools. Um, even though, when you look statistically at the number of of patients that have those issues, um, you would think that it would be a a, a larger uh, area of of uh, training. Um, and that is changing. Um, but the first step is to stop the disincentives. Like you said, right now we are losing physicians and, and looking at it from, from the legal standpoint, if I, was an, if I was a physician, I would be hesitant to get into those areas of practice. Um, and we have all kinds of, of uh, um, roadblocks, um, like what you, what you were talking about as far as the special licensing to be able to prescribe buprenorphine. Um, there, why make it more difficult for a physician as far as licensing to prescribe medications that can help someone with an addiction uh, than, than any of the other medications that, that doctors are, are able to, um, to prescribe. Um, I would think, and, I, and I'm certainly not um, an expert on this, but uh, with the, the, all of the discussion about student loans and um, all of the issues with that, if we want to give incentives, perhaps we could look at on some of the the uh, student loans that that new physicians coming out of school are are um, um, under those burdens. I mean, there are there are a lot of of uh, incentives, but the first the first step is to stop the disincentives because they are huge right now, and it is having a a, a horrendous impact um, yeah. on physicians and like, and also on patients across the board. Yeah, like I said, we're actually frightening doctors into not prescribing pain medicine. So clearly we're frightening them away from anybody kind of in any way related to any of that kind of medicine. Um, and, uh, mm -hmm. you know, that, so that's ag aggravating the situation. The other thing that's interesting, and you, you just mentioned this, we, what, what goes on in the country now is we have uh, uh, law enforcement uh, screening these uh what's called PDMPs, prescription drug monitoring programs. Every state has them now where, where all prescriptions are monitored and they're screening them looking for what they consider to be over-prescribers. Now, uh, Professor uh, Kelly Deneen of Creighton University Law School wrote a, an excellent law review article this past summer where she pointed out, uh, this was news to me, I'm not a lawyer, there is no legal definition of over-prescribing. It's sort of like in the eye of the beholder. Uh, like the mm -hmm. famous Supreme Court justice said about porn, you know it when you see it. So what a lot of uh, mm -hmm. of people in law enforcement and drug task force are doing is they're going combing through the, the database. And if they see uh, a particular doctor has prescribed what they consider to be, now remember, they're not doctors, but they consider this to be an unusual number of prescriptions. Then what they do uh, is they find some doctor who is therefore their expert and oftentimes these are doctors who are making a living being experts on this going around the country to mm -hmm. say, oh, yeah, that's way too many prescriptions. And now they have, because they have this expert telling them this, now they have a justification for going in and doing like a SWAT team raid on these doctor's offices and destroying their practice. And at the same time, dislocating all their patients, many of whom are chronic pain patients, mm -hmm. and no one else wants to take them because they're afraid the same thing's going to happen mm -hmm. to them. So this is a problem yes. and this all comes from the drug war 
Um, I got this. Uh, uh, this is a question from on Twitter from Free Russell Jones. I'm not sure we can answer this one. What do the speakers think of offering MDMA and psilocybin therapies for high school students to alleviate all sorts of problems, addiction foremost among them? And uh, I, I can only speak as a doctor. This is, I'm not an expert in this. I know that these are areas where a lot of research is being done. Uh, uh, I happen to I have a colleague here in Phoenix who's, who's doing research uh, for uh, the FDA actually on the clinical application of hallucinogens, but I don't know that that uh, that we have enough evidence yet. But it's, I just know it's an exciting, uh, exciting new area that has potential. Do you know anything about this, uh, Colleen? Well, I've read a lot about it, but my answer to that question would be um, for those decisions, I would much rather have them be made between the physician and the individual patient than having some bureaucrat telling us that that, uh, um, that, that can't even be considered. Um, and, I, you know, going into this many, many years ago, I think at least on some level, I thought, well, there must be some logic to uh, the scheduling of drugs and but if you look at, at cannabis still being a Schedule One drug, meaning that it has no medicinal, medicinal value whatsoever, uh, and the harm that having cannabis as a Schedule One drug has done, um, that for me taints any of these classifications. So whatever drug is there, on, I, I would... I would look at it from a medical standpoint. It should be between the patient and the doctor. I'm glad that there is more research being done because I think there are uh, amazing health benefits to some of these substances. Um, and a lot of that research was, um, you know, has been held back by the war on drugs, which has impacted everyone's health. Yeah. Um, but even uh, research I, on I, cannabis, yeah, I think that yeah. there are there are opportunities. Absolutely, yes. So the, the big yeah, thing is um, personal freedom to to go after your own medical care with your personal physician. You know, you you talked about how the you know the the, the drug enforcement uh, administration uh, you know has is almost there's no logic to their scheduling. So you have something that has would, would I don't know if anybody would not laugh when they hear somebody say there's no medical use for cannabis and it's Schedule One uh, and. LSD is Schedule One, even though there's a lot of research being done with it now for the treatment of a host of things. Um, now, methadone, okay, is Schedule Two. Uh, it's roughly the same strength as same potency as as diacetylmorphine, also known as heroin, but it it, it takes longer to get absorbed and, and to wear off. Um, it's been an effective pain reliever since it was invented in Germany in the 1930s. So as a as a licensed surgeon, a physician, uh, if this has occasionally been required, I'll have a patient who's, uh, let's say a chronic cancer pain patient who's suffering and I'm trying all different types of medications to control that person's pain. And it, we, it turns out methadone uh, is what's working. I'm it's perfectly allowed for me to prescribe methadone for pain. I wouldn't get any, no eyebrows would be raised if I'm in the hospital and I order methadone for a person's pain or even after they're out of the hospital, as long as it's for pain. But if I wanted to prescribe the methadone to deal with their substance use disorder, to help them avoid withdrawal and help taper them off the drug to which they have a, a physical dependency, I, I can go to jail. Instead, 
in this country, methadone has to be administered through a, a DEA-approved clinic, and the person has to take the methadone in the presence of a staff member because, you know, these people can't be trusted. And, um, um, and if you live 50 miles from the nearest methadone clinic and you got to go every day to take it in front of somebody, it's not going to work. It's not going to happen. Meanwhile, in several other countries like UK, Australia, Canada, doctors who are interested in treating people with substance use disorder are able to prescribe methadone just like they can prescribe it for their patients in pain. And um, mm -hmm. there's no obstruction to that. But we still have this, this uh, primitive way of, of dealing with methadone treatment here. Same thing with buprenorphine. Buprenorphine or Suboxone is a pain reliever. It's, a, it's actually not nearly as strong as some of the other opioids, but it's, it's used to treat pain. As long as you're treating pain, it's okay. But if you want to treat somebody with substance use disorder, you got to get a special waiver from the DEA. Makes no sense. But, and it's also standing in a way of helping these people. Well, and in regard to methadone, uh, uh, that is also an issue right now because of the coronavirus. These people that, ha that have to go to the methadone clinic, I mean, if we're supposed to be social distancing, that is an issue. And some of the clinics are allowing people, you know, more take-homes at this point. Um, but there, there are a host of issues with, uh, even with transportation. Um, most states have uh, an affirmative defense for driving issues. If you have methadone in your blood um, and you're pulled over, um, your defense can be, I am prescribed this and it's in my blood to the extent of the, my prescription. But they can still you have to you have to assert that as an affirmative defense. So you still end up potentially going to trial and you may lose if the prosecutor claims that you are still impaired. So we make people drive, like you said, sometimes 50 miles to get their methadone every day, but they can be pulled over at any point and prosecuted for driving um, on methadone. Um, so there's a, there's a host of, of issues. Um, the other point that you made, Jeff, is a really good one with, um, uh, if you, you use methadone as a, um, a pain reliever because something else didn't work, or if that doesn't work, you use something else. Because of our criminal justice system, when we're treating um, substance use disorder, um, and sometimes even pain patients, um, but particularly with, with substance use disorder, it's risky to change any type of medication. Now, one medication may work better than the other medication, but if we make a change and that person relapses before we find the medication that works the best for that person, they're probably going to end up behind bars because we have this perfection model system where if you have one relapse, um, you're you're uh, very likely to uh, to end up incarcerated. So it it really denies the ability to find the best medical care because we can't experiment um, like we do with any other medical condition. That's true. And and anybody who's been treated for other medical conditions is very comfortable with the idea of, for example, let's say you have uh, high blood pressure and your 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 primary care doctor starts you on a particular uh, anti-hypertensive anti agent, and it doesn't seem to do a thing for you. So then the doctor says, well, let's try this instead, or let's try this in combination with this, or let's try a higher dose. And eventually, uh, mm -hmm. you know, you arrive at the right combination of drugs at the right dose. There's no one size fits all. Yet when it comes to people who are being treated for pain, 
Or on the other hand, the other side of the coin, people who are being treated for substance use disorder, another illness, they're these recipes that we have to follow. It, 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 it you know, bothers me that as a surgeon, now I have these spelled out guidelines from in, in my state that tell me how many days and what do, maximum dose of pain medicine I can give to my patient uh, for a particular uh, condition after they've had surgery or a surgical condition. And how come they don't tell me what's the maximum dose of uh, insulin I can give my diabetic or what's the maximum dose of losartan I can give my, my hypertensive patient? But they're telling me what's the maximum dose of, of an opioid I can give to my patient in pain or, or what's the, the, the maximum dose of, of, uh, of medication-assisted treatment I can give to my patient I'm trying to treat with substance use disorder. It, the, the people who are using this particular class of drugs, whether medically or non-medically, are treated as a uh, second-class group of citizens nowadays. So, the, uh, you know, a lot of the the collateral damage from the war on drugs, unfortunately, are patients who are having pain, either acute or chronic. Um, there is a speaking about that. I got one of these on Twitter. Somebody sent it, Una sent in. Uh, do you know about this? She says, ask about HIPAA violations of veterinarians who access their, their human clients' medical records through the prescription drug monitoring base when they bring it in their animal uh, for a painful condition before they prescribe the narcotic to the, to the animal. So in other words, you bring in your dog, your dog needs a narcotic, mm -hmm. but they're checking out mm -hmm. you before they prescribe the narcotic to your dog, which, you know, they're not your doctor. <laughs> it's not their business, but I've heard about that. Uh, do you, have you heard about that? Yes, veter veterinarians do have access, um, at least in, in some cases. I haven't seen a, a HIPAA violation case. Um, there is a case, though, I, I mean, the, the thought that our medical records are no longer private uh, is really disturbing. Uh, and I think that's a, the, the PDMP is a good example of, oh, this sounds like a good idea. We don't want people doctor shopping, so let's have this system. Um, but it's a, a system gone very awry right now. Um, the DEA... Um, it accesses the um, the PDMP records. Um, an example of our tax dollars at work. Um, I'm very glad that New Hampshire uh, is, is fighting the DEA's um, access to the uh, the records, saying that those are private records. The DEA is uh, is claiming that our medical records should not be private using a third party doctrine that says if you release information to a third party, then it's not private. Well, they're claiming that because we release our medical records to a pharmacy, that's a third party. So therefore, we have no expectation of privacy of our medical records. So as taxpayers, we're spending money for the DEA to be fighting the states who are having to, to uh, also spend money on, on legal fees just to keep our medical um, records private. Um, and yes, the reason the rationale on veterinarians being able to access the medical records is because, you know, we may want to... Uh, um, you know, get get medications for fluffy and, you know, and, and uh, misuse them, I guess. Um, again, you know, theoretically, maybe maybe sounded like a good idea in some some, uh, you know, meeting room. But when it really comes down to uh, does that 
uh, outweigh the need to have privacy of our medical records, um, I've, you know, I would certainly argue that it does not. Uh, and it's a real problem with, uh, with individuals who either travel and live in different places or who's uh, particularly now that the doctors are getting out of this area of practice. So those PDMP records show uh, each doctor that, that you've seen. Well, you might be seeing several doctors, not because you're doctor shopping, but because you needed a specialist or because your doctor is no longer in practice and referred you to someone else or you moved or there are a lot of reasons but once you are tagged on, on the, the PDMP, um, you've got problems. And, you know, the, the DEA is also um, watching those PDMP records to, to go after the physicians, um, you know, which uh, to me, it's, it's just it, it is a system completely uh, out of control. Um, on a positive note, yeah, though, those- I mean, with all of the things that we've been talking about, oh, go ahead. No, no, but finish what you're saying. Well, I, I was just going to say on a positive yeah. note, um, when I was researching the book, it tended to, you know, it can, it can be um, pretty exasperating and, and, uh, and sometimes it seems a little bit hopeless. But when I look at, I mean, really in, in a historical context, this has not been going on. I mean, it's been going on a long time and it's imp- negatively impacted a whole lot of people. But in the, in the, in the sequence of history, um, you know, as in 1890, the Sears and Roebuck catalog for a dollar and a half, you could get a syringe and a small amount of cocaine and the world didn't fall apart. Um, we, these rules have been out of control and have been escalating out of control, um, relatively recently. And the good news is that they're so bad and they're so dysfunctional that if we make changes, there is enormous room for hope and uh, and to uh, uh, to really turn this around and and to uh, to give ba- patients back their rights and to uh, to stop traumatizing uh, substance users who who sometimes need help sometimes sometimes don't um, you know to to give back the ability to use our own bodies and to get help when we need to without fear. Um, but there is, I, I am hopeful because we're, we're talking about things like this and we're, um, there are more and more yeah. studies being done and just looking at what happened with cannabis. I mean, minds can be changed very quickly and policies can be changed very quickly. I mean, even on that, we've got a long yeah. way to go, but, but we're really making progress. Well, Colleen, you know, you mentioned about how, you know, in that not long ago, you could, order opium through the Sears catalog and you had cocaine in your cola drink. Um, it, it, we need to mention this because this unfortunately isn't mentioned enough. A lot of the, the drugs that were selected out to be prohibited, uh, you might wonder why is this drug prohibited and that one isn't. Mm-hmm. A lot of that is racially based. I mean, let's face it, whether we're talking about opium prohibition and people from China and, and Asia or uh, heroin, and African Americans, <coughs> African Americans, and uh, cannabis, and Mexican Americans. A lot of this is all racially based because it's okay for yeah, us even, all even to even the name to, marijuana to is racially based. Right, mm-hmm. right, because they don't they don't call it cannabis; they yeah, call it marijuana to kind of remind you of the association with people from Mexico. Meanwhile, um, you know when when people are addicted to alcohol which, by the way, takes 88,000 lives per year as opposed to uh, prescription painkillers, which take about, out of all of the opioid-related deaths, maybe 30,000. Um, 
the uh, when when they're addicted to alcohol, people tend to have a much more um, empathetic and humane attitude towards these people. They say, "Well, you have a problem. Let's get you help." They don't look at them as as morally depraved or as, as bad people who just need to stop. But that's alcohol. That's because mm-hmm. all of us use alcohol. So that's that that's mm-hmm. important. Really, should not go without being mentioned. Go ahead. Well, and I think that that uh, looking at that history, um, and I trace the history in the book of of uh, you know how how all of this came about because it is easy to be afraid of change, particularly when you're a parent worrying about your child. It's a, it, it's scary to be. Um, you know, I, we've lived with this long enough that we think it's the status quo. But when I started looking at the history, uh, it became very apparent that all of this came about for the very wrong reasons. Uh, and it stayed here for the wrong reasons. And I talk about a lot of the um, um, the, the, the the profits that have been made. And I am a blatant capitalist, but when we're making money off of putting people behind bars and having the incentives in the wrong place, then then we have uh, we have problems. Um, but I think the core question for me is if we legalize drugs, will it put our children at greater risk or will it will it um, will it make them safer? Um, there's a, a quote from uh, Kofi Annan, former Secretary General of the United States, that, that I, I really appreciate. He United says, Nations. we all want to protect our families. Uh, the United Nations, sorry. Um, we all want to protect our families from the potential harm of drugs. But if our children do develop a drug problem, surely we will want them cared for as patients in need of treatment and not branded as criminals. Because today, your child is three times more likely to be arrested before the age of 23 than in any previous generation. And studies have shown that those arrests are harming our kids. Everything from uh, changing their attitudes uh, about law enforcement uh, to future opportunities. Those who are arrested at a young age uh, have lower incomes for the rest of their lives. They have lower incidences of marriage for the rest of their lives. And they, they're, in a lot of cases, their um, self-esteem and their identities are changed because at a young age, they are deemed to be criminals and they're, um, and, and they spend time, I mean, talk about a criminal university, throw somebody in jail for a, a minor uh, drug infraction. Um, it, it really is very, very harmful. Um, and I think if we, if we really look in the mirror and ask ourselves under our current system, are our kids safe? I mean, are, are, are our kids, can our kids get drugs if they want to? Absolutely, they can. Where are they getting them? From the guy on the street who is, uh, who, who gets his supply from the drug cartels who have a lot of incentive to add fentanyl. It makes it easier to uh, smuggle across borders. And, uh, um, and but, if they uh, <laughs> have to go to the street dealer for, uh, for cannabis, um, Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah. Well, that, actually, that was a great way to wrap this up. Our time is up. You can see we could talk about this for about another hour. I encourage viewers to uh, get a copy of Colleen Cow's book. It's it's a great re- uh, reference source. It's a, I, I was impressed with how well-researched it was. It's loaded with notes and, and sources to back up what she's saying, a lot of uh, scientific literature sourcing. And it covers basically every 
possible angle of the war on drugs. Uh, it's called The War on Us, uh, how the war on drugs and myths about addiction have created a war on all of us. And Colleen, what, they could just get it from Amazon or is there a website to go to? Yes. Uh, Am it, they can get it yes. at Amazon. Uh, also, waronus.com has, uh, if you want a, a complimentary chapter, and there's some videos and that kind of thing on waronus.com. Uh, but uh, yeah, you can order right from Amazon. Okay, well, thank you so much for participating in this, our inaugural uh, coronavirus webcast. <laughs> and uh, um, thank you, everyone, for watching. And uh, I appreciate you following the Cato Institute. You can see all of the work of our scholars at Cato.org. And thank you very much.